Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Angel Eduardo, and my co-host, who you will hear in a minute, is Melissa Chen. Today, we're speaking with Sarah Hader. Sarah is a Pakistani-American writer, public speaker, political activist, and co-founder of the advocacy group Ex-Muslims of North America, which seeks to normalize religious dissent and to help former Muslims leave the religion by linking them to support networks. Sarah's also recently launched her new Substack, Hold That Thought, where she discusses politics, religion, culture, and more. Today we talk about her founding of ex-Muslims of North America, why she refuses to throat clear about her progressive credentials anymore, the effects of engaging in the activist space on her personal morale, the complexity of social problems and the issues with oversimplification, the similarities between wokeness and religious fanaticism, and how wokeness pervaded the atheist movement, tokenism and its effects, Joe Rogan and censorship, our lack of trust in news media, and whether there is hope for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Sarah Hader. Hi, I'm Sarah Hader. Welcome to the Fair Perspectives podcast. Thanks for having me on. We're really excited to have you. And I feel like we've been kind of traveling in the same circles for a long time, but this is actually the first time I'm actually speaking to you directly. Yeah. Yeah. It's so exciting. So let's, let's kind of dive right into it. Um, you know, we're, you, you started a, a new Substack, and your writing has been so excellent. Angel, I've been really, really huge fans of it. Um, but we want to kind of go back into your role um, with, with you founding this organization, the Ex-Muslims of North America. Mm-hmm. Are you still involved with it? What is, can you tell us more about, about what you do there? Yeah. So I was one of the founders of Ex-Muslims of North America back in 2013, which feels like forever ago now. We aim to just fight the, the many ways that apostates from Islam suffer when they lead to faith. So there's, you know, community ostracization. I think a lot of people know about that. Um, and that happens to a lot of different faiths as well. But with people who leave Islam, it can be kind of extreme. Um, a lot of them face abuse. Um, they face um, sometimes, you know, threats, sometimes kidnappings in extreme cases. And so we wanted to do what we can to help those people. We wanted to provide them support it, to the extent that we could, um, aid when we when we could as well. Um, so this organization um, existed to fight for the rights and dignities of of people who leave Islam. And I've been in that position for um, as executive director um, there for 
many years now. I'm still executive director there, um, and the organization is still going strong. And I've learned a lot as I've been involved in the activist space. And that was at least that was part of why I wanted to start writing on Substack. Um, there was a lot of things I wanted to talk about about the progressive activist space, the thing kinds of social dynamics I saw kind of um, overtake the space. And I wanted to, you know, do what I can to fix that environment. And if if that just means shedding light on what's going on and giving a bit of my analysis, then then so be it. And I hope that that helps. Now you did kind of step away from the public eye a little bit, though. I feel like maybe maybe it's just me. I didn't get you as much in my feed. Yeah. But I got the impression that you kind of took some time away. And yeah. You were kind I of did. exasperated by the whole thing. So uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us about I, that. And, and I was off, off um, social media mostly, but but also just anything outside of just my day job for much of COVID. And I'm glad that I was because I think it was an especially deranging time, especially the the, the summer of love that that we happened with the mostly peaceful protests and everything. Um, <laughs> I'm you know I, I sort of just witnessed it at a distance, and it and I was able to think a little bit more deeply about. The, like what, what we were seeing play out. I've read a lot more. I engaged in my direct work whenever I could. I think that was um, mentally um, hygienic <laughs> practice. Um, and I came away from it feeling that, that the, the path that I had been on for a very long time as this just very um, hopeful, I think kind of naive person who thought, well, the left has some problems and we, the real liberals, just need to stand up and we need to talk about it and we need to shed light on it. And then, you know, and if enough of us are courageous, things will change. Um, and I started to think now that, you know, maybe something more fundamental is is going on. Um, and one of my pieces in Substack, I, I did talk about how, you know, I don't bother saying that I'm a progressive anymore. Um, I'd have done this. From the very beginning, you know, from the very, very beginning, um, because I was uh, working in a context that was perceived as being anti-Muslim and when it really was, uh, you know, criticizing the religion, when it really was uh, fighting for the rights of people who leave the religion, because there was this shadow of, you know, perceived, you know, bigotry by myself and my colleagues, we always had to do a lot of throat clearing before we began any kind of conversation about our own rights. So, so I would be, you know, in a position where I'm talking about honor violence. I'm talking about people being threatened um, by their family members, people being abused, people um, fearing for their very lives. But before I could have that conversation, the first thing I had to do was uh, do this, you know, throat clearing, what I call throat clearing, where I had to talk about, well, look, I really am a progressive. And I don't believe in such and such, you know, um, racist, xenophobic policy, you know, and I found that it didn't really help. <laughs> yeah. um, and I started to think about, you know, what is actually going on here that we don't trust that you know, fellow progressives to bring up problems within the social, you know, culture and, and within our dynamics um, without uh, labeling them as right-wing or conservative. Do you actually see a direct line between, you know, I guess what it, it's kind of mutated over the years. I feel like what started as, you know, being called the the regressive left mutated into social justice, mutated into where we are now with woke 
Do you see a direct line between, you know, these kinds of ideas about intersectionality and, and, and wokeness in general to how people view exactly what you're talking about, which is um, these ideas where, you know, if, if we were if we were criticizing, say, you know, Christians for being exactly as conservative as as Muslims, somehow the latter is being handled with with kid gloves and 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 we're overstepping in terms of worrying about Islamophobia and um, you know, just kind of not offending people. Do you see a direct line between between these, you know, the ideology and and um, you know, kind of where you are right now with with having to walk on eggshells? Yeah, I think it's 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 part of the same broad movement. You know, I see wokeism as as the bigger uh, sh- cultural shift that that got me into trouble when I was uh, just trying to fight for the rights of, you know, what I, what I thought was a, an oppressed minority. And I thought were very logical and reasonable asks. And, uh, you know, and I've, I found myself brushing up against something I didn't understand initially. And I, I think misinterpreted as just confusion. You know, I just thought there are a lot of liberals who don't understand that this isn't anti-Muslim bigotry. And I need to I need to talk to them about, you know, what's really going on. I need to share with them the facts about what ex-Muslims go through. And when they are faced with the reality of things um, and they see that really I'm fighting for women's rights and I'm fighting for religious freedom and I'm fighting for freedom of speech, all these things that liberals and progressives are supposed to care very much about, they will then support me. Right. And 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 you brush up against this once, twice, and then you just keep pushing at it for years. Um, and you find it, you know, I, I'm not the only activist that's kind of in this bizarre little space where they're uh, brushing up against woke orthodoxy and finding it impossible to move forward. And the experience um, over the course of many years really starts to wear you down. <laughs> you know, you have the, the the pep and zeal of a new activist at first. Um, yeah. And then over the course of years and years of being told that you're a bigot because you, you know, are, are doing the exact same things that other atheists do when it comes to Christianity or, you know, Judaism and, and to find your, your reputation just dragged to the mud all the time is over time, it does wear down on you. And it, and I think that I started to think more deeply about uh, whether this was the right tact, even, you know, just to, um, approach things in this very peppy, like naive, like, let me just, (laughs) let me just talk to you about what's going on. Mm. One of the problems, right, is that it's, it's the issue of of who is marginalized, who is oppressed. You're actually marginalized by the marginalized, uh, according in this, in this view, you're a minority of a minority. You're the apostates who are leaving, who are leaving religion and, and often encounter a lot of issues where you know, you are facing oppression from from family, from from the culture that um, that, you know, you are imbued with at birth. So so that's kind of the interesting nuance here that I think, you know, people who see this very black and white hierarchical, um, just there are just oppressors and then there are victims don't see the the people oppressed by the oppressed in a way like it's yeah. there is a lot more nuance to this. And, and it's all it's 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 kind of tossed out the window. Yeah, there's a flattening of. Uh, social dynamics and our, 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 you know, our culture at large, which is really, I mean, as you pointed out, um, it's untrue, right? I mean, and it, it, it erases the experiences of a lot of people. Um, it also just takes away from 
the, the depth of our culture, right? Like social problems are complicated, which is why it takes so much work and effort and discussion to get anywhere. Um, and uh, woke ideology, I mean, woke ideology, like quotation marks, like who, that's the, the term that I use to describe it. Um, it. It does flatten all these distinctions into just um, a very clear story of these are the marginalized, these are the oppressors, um, to view um, a very complicated reality, um, a very multidimensional reality through the lens of this power dynamic between whites and everyone else. And of course, the consequence of that is that there are a lot of people who don't fit in that, you know, that, that paradigm doesn't make sense given what they're experiencing at all. Um, and then those people are, are just erased. We're not talked about, we're not given, you know, uh, platforms, um, we're kind of, you know, an embarrassing um, <laughs> addition to the atheism movement um, because we're uh, bringing up these, these points that no one really wants to talk about. You mentioned a couple of things that I would love to dig into, but the first thing I think, you know, you, you talked about being kind of uh, weary and sort of, you know, beaten down by this, this immense pressure and by the, the lack of nuance. But what do you attribute that lack of nuance to? What do you think is motivating that perspective and that approach in people? What, why is it so difficult? Um, well, I think, I mean, it's it, so I try not to look at everything through the realm, realm of, uh, or, um, through religion, but I, maybe I can't mm. help it. Maybe that's just my background. And it's one of those, you know, um, if I was leading you, you to a that. hammer kind of thing. Um, yeah. but, but I, I, I do see, um, a lot of similarities between, um, the, the ideology that has taken over much of the elite and, um, just religion in general and religious fanaticism and fundamentalism. And I have a lot of experience with, um, you know, countries and communities that get taken over by something very, something that just a couple of years ago would have seemed insane. Um, and I've seen how quickly these things become normalized. Um, and a lot of it just has to do with the way that we socialize um, with um, our, our, our very interesting ability to, to shut down our own mental and reasoning capacities um, when there is significant social pressure. Um, to behave one way or another. Um, and I've seen communities fall to, to fundamentalism fairly easily, you know, and overnight, it seems like. And in a way where, uh, you know, no one really understands that what the one change was that flipped the switch between, you know, insane fundamentalism and, and, and your, your normal day-to-day life. But it's, it, just, it just slides into it fairly quickly. And then once you're there, there is not a lot of oxygen for, for anyone who disagrees. And I think that's right. where we are with, you know, the current progressive, like liberal space. I mean, it, I even hesitate to use the terms progressive and liberal because they don't seem liberal to me. They don't seem progressive to me. So it just feels right. like a betrayal even of those movements to say that, that, that this is what we're seeing. We're seeing progressives lose their mind. I don't know if they're progressive anymore. I don't know if they're liberal anymore. <laughs> Yeah. And it's analogous actually to the kind of, you know, speaking of kind of betraying the principles, there was the whole new atheist movement, which is part of, you know, when you came up, that kind of, a lot of it kind of, you mentioned this kind of phased into this same sort of dogmatism. And it seems that if anyone would be inoculated to this, it would be the people who just escaped 
a similar sort of dogmatism. Mm-hmm. Many, you know, many of the that new th- new atheist movement were apostates, but here we are, and now there's kind of this new dogma that just got adopted. What do you think is going on there, and and yeah, how did um, we not see it? Yeah, I think so. It wasn't so much new atheists that became very woke, but it is the atheist community in general that became right, very yeah. woke and sort of slid into it very quickly. Um, you know, I mean, the switch happened overnight and I saw it. Um, so I have a confession that I'll share here that Uh-oh. I don't think I talked about anywhere else. In the very beginning stages, like when I first came, became a part of the atheist community, I was a bit of an SUW. I mean, not, not quite, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I was... I was on the side of, of, you know, there was, there was a kind of a divide that was happening between feminists and skeptics, I guess you might call them um, in the atheism community at that time. They called oh, it elevator this. gate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember um, so that was happening. And right in the initial stages, I was with the feminists. I mean, I understood um, the points that they were making intuitively, like as a woman, I've had certain experiences and, Sure. Um, I couldn't see anything wrong with making atheism a more inclusive space for for women and minorities. And then as I witnessed, well, how are they going to bring this about? I started to see that there's no way this will work, you know, or if it does work, <laughs> it will destroy a lot of important um, values that 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 atheists tend to hold and have. Right. Like due process. Right. Like true critical debate, open discussion, you know, we're going to lose all of that. And it is really important that we don't risk these very important values. Um, uh, So, so then I I started to see in my own mind, I started to think about what exactly is going on here. But at first I was just um, a little bit distant. I was just working on my little nonprofit, chugging away. Um, and then as I started to become more active and become more open and engage in these public debates, people started to get a little bit more frustrated with how I was engaging and the points that I was bringing up. I remember this was back in like 2015, I gave a speech and that speech did fairly well. And I think that was when a lot of people started hearing of me at the American Humanist Association. I was so terrified. It was my first like big speech like that. I was um, extremely nervous. I think I had like two shots like before I went up on, on, on the podium because it just to calm my nerves. Um, but right before, um, you know, uh, my speech, which was about the necessity of liberals to start critiquing Islam, there was a panel and that panel was about anti-racism. And their, uh, you know, their approach to what we need to do more of and what we need to do less of was their their prescriptions were the exact opposite of mine. They Mm. were saying, you know, stop and listen, like, you know, don't talk about these things or let's, let's, let's think about what we mean when we say free, free expression, you know, um, Mm. which was, it was just a completely opposite um, perspective than the one that I had and the one that I was bringing to the table. Um, so I was very, you know, even in that time, I was very nervous because I was seeing this uh, movement take over organized atheism. And I, you know, a lot of people have brought up that that maybe it is the case that uh, something about losing your spiritual center or, a, you know, community grounding makes you more susceptible to being swept up by a different kind of ideology, especially something like this, that's very like takes over your brain, right? And and mm. and has very strict demands on people. 
Uh, I mean, there's, I think there is something to be said there. You know, I do think people crave a kind of rigidity and a space where they can just, just stop and do the thing that people want them to do. And they can belong to this community and feel as if they're a part of something bigger. And well, you can see that in the movement itself because, Mm -hmm. you know, there were militant atheists, people that that's what they were all about. You know, their podcasts Mm -hmm. were all about it. If -hmm. they were in a band, their band was all about it. And it was terrible. (laughs) <laughs> it it turned into this thing, but, but what's, what's unique about it to me, what's interesting is that there's, I think there's a pretty important difference between forming a community or forming a sense of identity around what you're against versus something that you're for. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that might be one part of the allure there where, you know, anti-racism, yes, it's anti-racism, but it's for a bunch of stuff. It's very kind of proactive in that way. Whereas mm-hmm. the atheist community was more about, no, this is all bad. It needs to go away kind of stuff. And there's not, yeah, you know, I mean, there's but, a but huge variety. The humanists didn't really survive it. And if anything, the humanists were the first to go. Right. Um, and the true. humanists <laughs> tend to have a very, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I, you know, what you said makes perfect sense to me. And I would think that yeah. that, that that is really what's going on, except the, the first people to sort of just be really deranged uh, by by social justice activism, where where the humanists, and I think these were the maybe what's going on is 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 not that effect, but just that um, these are the people who had a very strong you know self orientation towards being caring individuals and compassionate individuals, right? And so right. then we have a movement that says, if you are caring, if you are compassionate, you will listen to our pain because we are in pain. Right. And we are, you know, literally shaking all the time. And, 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 and they talk about all the harms against uh, marginalized people, against women, against, you know, minorities. And so if you're somebody who very much cares about being caring, right, uh, or even being seen to be caring, right? I mean, if that's something, right. that's how you see yourself, you will be vulnerable to this kind of tactic, even if it's not based on anything real. You know, even if it's mm. even if there's nothing to it, it's easy to be shamed into a corner. And I think that is partially what what I saw happen to 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 the humanists in particular. I, I think it's also, you know, if it's limited focus. Right. So, you know, your organization, you are actually defining yourself by something that I won't say you're against, but you're, you're defining. It's, it's interesting. You're, you're, it's ex-Muslims of North America. You, you are. It's a group of people mm-hmm. who are not something anymore. And, and it's limited focus. So, you know, there are certain issues that pertain to this community and trying to leave this community um, and, and all the attendant you know, kind of cultural, you know, issues um, that, that go along with that. And so you're addressing that in a very limited way. But I'm sure if you survey your members, people who do identify themselves as ex-Muslims who live here in this country or, or um, Canada, um, politically and everything, they're, they're probably all over the map. You probably have, you know, um, progressive Muslims as, as well as conservative Muslims um, politically, right? Like who would vote for uh, Trudeau or who would vote for Harper or something like that. So I, I do think it the limited focus aspect of being against something um, is, is interesting, but then group dynamics always kind of end up mm-hmm. infecting it. I know we're talking about the new atheist movement, but but that's also true of, you know, say the intellectual dark web and what happened to it, right? Um, so group dynamics always kind of set in after a while if you don't define if you're if you're not uh, positively for something. I think that's that's a that's a better um way to organize yeah. yourself. Yeah, I think that that distinction that you made between um 
you know, I, between having a limited focus, but also like having an action oriented focus, right? Like we want this, like, this is what we want. Mm, um, and right. we're, we're, we're oriented yeah. towards getting to that goal and not towards necessarily having a shared, like whole philosophy. Um, and I think that that, that right. helps us in, at least in the short term so far, I think it's been good for the organization that we've just been, um, focused on, on, on actually the very difficult problems that, that, that we're thinking about, but, but there's, there's a separate problem of, of people's, people's need to belong to something, um, people's need to have their identities mm-hmm anchored in something outside themselves almost that is that is currently not being met by by a lot of things and it used to be met by religion um it used to be met by maybe your 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 community that you were you were born into even if that's a cultural community but now that we're in this this new world there's a lot of choice which is fantastic i'm so happy and you know we we can be who we want to be we can recreate ourselves um however we like. I think that there is the side effect of that as well, which is of feeling alienated and feeling disconnected and yep. uh, sort of floating in, in space somewhere without something to give you perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people will increasingly gravitate towards these ideologies, whether that be a woke ideology or far-right extremism, but anything that can give them a clear sense of their past, of their present, of their future. Right. Like, and people mm. crave this, right. They crave, this is, this is how to look at American history. They don't want, um, things are complicated. <laughs> like America's <laughs> good, but America's also done some bad things. And, and, yeah. and, you know, it, this, it's very difficult to come out of that nuanced perspective, still being able to hold on to principles, right. Still being able to think that, well, we did some bad things, but America is still a country worth fighting for. We're still a nation that's grounded in some principles that are worth fighting for. Um, Mm. The average American is still a good person, a good neighbor, right. Um, It's actually a, a difficult position to hold. And I think we should, if we're to move forward and to, to, to get past this hurdle, we have to acknowledge that it's not as easy as it sounds to, right. to hold this. It's much easier to say, let me condemn America and all Americans and our, you know, we were founded on, you know, such and such principles of, of uh, inequality rather than equality. Um, so I think that, that we have to acknowledge uh, the, the internal difficulties, the, uh, the the challenges to one's sense of self and one's connection with others that modernity is bringing yeah so that we can better prepare for these ideologies that will um take advantage of the the alienation that people are experiencing and give them an answer it reminds me of uh a lot of things one of the things that came up when i was listening to you just now is that martin luther king quote which i think he wrote when he was like a teenager but just about the the purpose of education that you know intelligence is not the only aim intelligence plus character that is the mark of true education and i think what he's getting at there is that uh, you know there's another quote of his where you know we we've uh, we have our our scientific power has outrun our spiritual power you know we have we have guided missiles and misguided men mm. and i think the the principles at players are similar there which is just that the more we, the more we get, the more options we have, the wider our world gets, the more complex our world gets, the more responsibility we have mm-hmm. to it and for it. Mm-hmm. 
in order to, to navigate it properly. But what we, what we just instinctively do is flatten everything because right. it's just easier, right? Like I, I keep thinking of, you know, the anxiety that I get when I see those stupid little badges on my phone, you know, you have yeah. 46 text messages, yeah. you have 200, like I get people, people troll me now. They send me screen grabs of their phone, um, with like 10,000 unread emails because it gives me anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) but like what I, all I want to do is get rid of that little red bubble. All I want to do is get rid of those numbers. I want it to be clean and clear. And I feel like that's just a human thing. And Mm -hmm. I think we're just doing that with everything. Like, oh my God, there's way too much nuance and complexity. Let me just flatten it, answer all the questions, you know, like select all click yes. And then we're done. Um, but of course there's so many unintended consequences to that. And I think Mm -hmm. one of them you wrote about, which is it manifested itself in the, in, in the atheist community with tokenism. You mm-hmm. wrote this great piece about tokenism and the way that it, it actually ends up erasing people, all the exact same people you're trying to uplift and highlight and, you know, make sure they're included. You're, you're erasing them all. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk a little bit about that, what your experience was and what you think. Yeah. Um, it's a tough subject to talk about because you never want to see yourself as a token. You know, right. you always want to, it, entertain the idea that I belonged where I was and I was included because I'm talented and I'm intelligent and, you know, nice to people, whatever you, you want to be, uh, you want to earn your spot and it's painful to, to look back, um, at your work that you, you know, that is something that you care about. Um, uh, something that you gave your whole heart and soul in, into and to see that maybe people weren't looking at me um, in, the, in quite that way. Uh, maybe they saw me as something a lot more superficial than that, um, something to, to uh, you know, uh, protect them from charges of racism um, that I'm this like melanated, you know, um, uh, shield. <laughs> and uh, it's a, it was a tough thing to write about and to talk about. I covered um, one experience that I had and I, I'll let people read the piece itself. I won't go into detail about it, but one mm-hmm. experience that I had, uh, and there were many, so there were many to pick from, but I just didn't want to out too many people. Um, I didn't want to get, <laughs> I didn't want to start any drama because it's just not, it's not because I'm afraid of it, but because it's uh, annoying. So <laughs> I, I, I picked an example that was um, a long time ago, and uh, I thought fairly well illustrated my point, which was when we were putting on this very large event, um, very, very expensive, very, very large event um, for the atheist community. And very quickly, the dynamic became, um, I mean, and uh, I'm, even when I'm describing this to you, of course, there were other things going on. There were other challenges that organization organizers were facing. This is just one aspect of it. And the, and, and I, I think a particularly harmful aspect, which was that we were uh, pressured very strongly to have tokens on, you know, the speaker panels um, on, you know, uh, on even the organizers, right? Like, so even my position where I was, a, I was a board member, I was an organizer, I was helping run things there was a there was a powerful pressure that was just running behind the scenes to get anyone that looked colored you know like uh, like me like anyone who looks like they were an ethnic person um involved and 
only for one reason, which was just to to uh, make it so that there wasn't um, too many accusations of racism and sexism um, inevitably. And I think that this created a climate where, you know, I, I'll, I won't repeat um, what I talked about in my piece, um, but I'll share some more, I guess, personal experiences, which is that I felt as if um, you know, knowing that my space, my seat on uh, on the board was kind of tokenistic, that when I was seeing problems, you know, when I was seeing mistakes, you know, occurring, I didn't feel empowered enough to speak up because I knew, you know, in the back of my head, they're not really, they don't really care about what I think. <laughs> That's not why I'm here. And so I, I wasn't as loud about the problems that I saw as I as I would have been had I been sure that my, my seat was deserved. And I, it created a sense of distance, I felt, um, between myself and the other organizers. Um, you know, that there was this camaraderie, camaraderie of people who are working together for, uh, to, to achieve a goal. They're based on their own individual talents and, you know, unique perspectives. Um, and I was kind of this, like, outsider. You know, I was one of the few, like, tokenized people. Um, I think it over time it just destroys communities, and what it does is it leads to more tokenism, and that's sort of inevitable. That that once you begin to tokenize and you begin to pull in people, um, these superficial, um, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. this uh, people superficially maybe qualified, but not it, it, their main qualification being that they are. Latino or black or, mm-hmm. or South Asian, um, over time, it, it creates these really warped incentives that make it that make it so that talented minorities, true talented minorities will not either, they either will not stay in that community very long or their talents will not be fostered and they will not become as competent as they could. And then over time, you're just going to see more and more superficial diversity, um, AKA tokenism. Yeah. I was actually just going to say that what you, what you just described seems to me to be kind of we're down that path with DEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, movement, because it's, it's now, you know, what you're describing is now happening on the board level, on school admissions levels, and, you know, might take over all of, all of society as a, as a, you know, as an approach so, I mean, the problems of tokenism, I, I don't I don't really see that being slowed down in any way. I mean, I can't mm-hmm. other than returning to to, you know, kind of the, the, the baseline, really like equal opportunity. I, I can't see this actually being reversed. Yeah, I, I, I don't either. I don't th- I think there's only this is a, you know, one way train. And uh, I'm going to be thinking about, of course, how we can possibly reverse it. But it just doesn't seem like something that can you know, even if we were to implement some changes, maybe um, in a legal level um, or try, try and change a culture slowly, but surely it will take many, many years. But I, in the meantime, we are I think, Melissa, you're you're perfectly right that this is just something we're about to see more and more and more of. And there's a tax there. You know, what I mean, if you forget about it from a we can we can talk about um, on a pure, you know, market oriented level. There's just if you force companies and organizations to think about something other than efficiency and productivity and competence, um, you're necessarily going to you're 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 forcing attacks on them, yeah, you know, um, that they have to swallow or or another. Um, so right. they're going to think of easy and quick ways to do it. 
And those easy and quick ways will be to create these uh, sinecures for tokenized people. Um, they're mm -hmm. not going to have much power or say necessarily, but it's just going to be this like safe space that we can throw you in and then you won't be able to do much damage and we'll be able to say that we have such and such percentage brown and black people um, right. you know, yeah. um, involved. And, you know, so there, that's, there, that's a tax on, that on a societal level will, will harm, you know, our ability, you know, in the Western world to compete with yep. um, other civilizations, which are doing nothing other than they're just optimizing, right? They're optimizing for productivity. They're optimizing for efficiency. They're optimizing exactly. for, for, for dominance. And here we are putting a tax on, on our, right. um, on our institutions that just seems to me to be stupid uh, beyond, right. you know, a lot of other things. It's just, it's definitely one of those things that's going to be, it, it's self-harming and it will, we will. And there's a spiritual tax as well. I think, you know, like, like the resentment that it does create um, between groups of, mm -hmm. of people here in this country who have to share this country and have to share certain values to live in this country. Mm. And, and there is that spiritual harm. I mean, I know we're atheists talking about spirituality, but, but there, there is a, a cost to <laughs> on a on a cultural level. I think we don't want to use the word spiritual. <laughs> no, I, yeah. I, I I've started to use the word spiritual uh, more to Melissa because I think it captures something that is difficult to articulate in any other way. Even though I don't mean it in the sense of being connected to a divine, divine. but I but I yeah. do mean it as being connected to you know community or to some values um, in a way that transcends uh, just a pure rational calculation. And uh, yeah, you're right that it, that it, um, I mean, would you say that in the past 10 years, you feel like we have got become a more tolerant and like, have we become a, 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 a society that is better about race? You know, have you felt there was a, there was a time where I would say that the goal is post-racialism, right? It's a, it's a, it's a time where yeah. we just don't see race anymore and it really doesn't matter anymore. I think it matters a lot more now than it did 10 years ago you know, a lot more now. And I notice it a lot more now. I think about it a lot more now in my day-to-day -day interactions. Race is an issue in a way that it wasn't 10 years ago. Um, yeah. So where are we headed, right? Like we're, we're going towards a society that becomes more segmented, that becomes where racial identities become more and more crystallized. And we begin to mm. address each other as collectives, um, you know, as representatives of certain yeah. races. Um, and how can this possibly be a good thing? Yeah. You yeah. know, and I see there's, there's, uh, there's a hesitancy or even denial in some quarters about the fact that this is happening. I'm told all the time, we need to talk about race. We need to talk about this problem and that problem. It feels to me that we're doing nothing but talking about this yeah. all the time. Um, and it hasn't helped. What, what do you think though, about the possibility that the the discourse around race has definitely been exacerbated and and has blown up beyond you know what we could have even imagined ten years ago, but that the reality is probably better or at least the same as it used to be, where you know it's possible to put your phone down, delete your Twitter, not watch the news like you 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 know you wrote that piece just now uh, about not watching the news, walk away and just interact with your neighbors mm -hmm. and just do go, you know, go about your daily life and actually not have it be a thing. Is that mm -hmm. actually, is that real? Or is that just a perception that I have? Because maybe I have, you know, a, a particular cohort of people who really don't care about this stuff. 
in that way. I mean, yeah. it, you know, the things that matter matter, but what do you think about that? Do you think that it's, it's kind of a, it's a tough thing to gauge, especially yeah. when, you know, we, I think, I think I'll speak for all three of us. And I say that we are in a very special little bubble <laughs> where we're hyper-focused right. on culture and uh, cultural changes. And we're, spe- we're hyper-focused also on elite behavior versus the behavior of the, of the everyday man. And I, I, I we're, we're certainly distanced from the everyday American, even if I, I think we make efforts not to be, I make efforts to participate in, you know, in, in the part of the world that doesn't know that Twitter is a thing still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it, you're right that it does feel different. And I think to, to a large extent that, that it is, um, it's not as bad as, as elites and they kind of are operating on like the, every the normal Americans are, are operating under different rules. Um, yeah. And I think there is a, to the extent that we have more interracial marriages and relationships, um, that is actually a very good sign of tolerance. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading it not so, so long ago, um, back when I was in college, um, about the two, two factors that are very good at indicators of whether a, a, an immigrant community has assimilated. Um, they are whether or not uh, they marry into native populations. And whether they root for um, the country they came from or their new country, when especially when they're facing mm. off each other in sporting events. So for like Pakistani mm. immigrants, it would be like, do you root, root for, you know, Pakistan or America at the Olympics? Right. Um, mm-hmm. So those, that, that was interesting. But it was interesting to me that marriage was a big part of it. But then of course, it would be right. Like inter it's a very that's a most, um, you know, important relationship that many of us um you know willingly um sign on to is 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 marriage mm-hmm. is our spouse is our partner in life is somebody we create children with um and to the extent that there are more interracial people i i think that that is that is a wonderful sign and that is true it is true that a lot of people are moving beyond oh, the kind of on. racism that we saw in um in in the western world um even even you know, not too long ago. And I think we're moving beyond it. We're not away from it entirely, but we are moving beyond it. Having said that, elite culture trickles down everywhere and it influences policy in a way that the normal Americans cannot, um, they simply cannot. Uh, so we will be seeing, we will be, even if we don't feel the way that the elites feel about race, we will be behaving the way they behave in terms of race, um, we will be applying the same mechanisms of, you know, tokenism or what have you in our uh, organizations, in our workspaces. Um, and that is something that that we, we really can't help. So actually, I was looking I was looking at the data um, on on race in America. And and it's interesting that the the, the sort of macro index of, of how we measure uh, racial progress it's all in the right direction. Like you said, you know, there's increasing numbers of, of inter, interracial marriages. The other one is there's an, there's an annual survey asking people, would you live next door to somebody of a different race? And they ask mm-hmm. this across the world and they do a cross-cultural comparison. America's been moving, again, in the right direction. And it's, it's, it's very consistent. But on the other hand, if you look at the public's views of the country's racial progress, it is the other way. It is negative and it, mm. it has been, it's been declining. And so while you have this phenomenon where by action, it seems like America has gotten more and more and more tolerant, 
um, the the views of of the public in the last I don't know five years it looks like um, that that's when the, their views of, of racial progress has really took, taken a, a dive and I think in part this is what you're referring to with you know if if sort of elite culture uh, has been deriding race relations and uh, kind of inflaming it for the last, you know, five years and, and using the racial lens as the sole way to adjudicate or analyze on all, almost any issue. You're starting to see that with like, you know, news media articles, right? Um, mm-hmm. When they insert like, you know, let's say there's a mass murder or something like when the race is, is relevant, <laughs> when it's not. And and this game that is played in, 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 in the media, of course, people look at that. Like everyday people are, are looking at this and saying like, no, wait a minute, something about race relations isn't, isn't, uh, you know, what it used to be. But yeah. but on the other hand, they are becoming more and more tolerant, and you see this especially generational, like the the young generation, the you know what do you call it, Z now, they're the most uh, tolerant, and and not just of any race, but also of uh, you know sexual minorities. Right. It's it's um, something that I I I haven't quite you know uh, crystallized in my own thinking, but it feels like a separation between the reality of race as most people experience it and the concept of race as it is in, in the cultural discourse. Um, and I think, you know, one of the more interesting things um, about the 2020 election was that more black and brown people voted for Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016, which a lot of people didn't know about. And it is not discussed as often as it it really should be something that's discussed all the time. Why did it right. happen? I mean, it didn't happen in huge numbers, but it did happen. And so we should think about what's going on there, you know, because we, we did nothing but focus on, you know, race for four years. And, um, and some black and brown people responded to that by going towards the person who's supposed to be this uh, herald of, of white supremacy rule in, in America. So we should just think about what exactly is going on here and whether there are other factors at play and other things that people care about. And maybe there, maybe there's even an element of, of rebellion here um, that, that is something that should be looked into. So there's the reality of race. There's also a lot of Latinos who are moving away in Texas. That's a big issue. I follow Texas politics and that's where I'm from. And there are a lot of Latinos who are walking away from the democratic party and walking towards um, the the, the Republican party. And, And at a time where we're told that they are, white supremacists. So, you know, (laughs) the way to square that circle in the eyes of some media elite is to call those people um, themselves avatars of white supremacy. They are white adjacent or they're politically white. Yeah. They're it's, it's to, it's to, it's to uh, take the little race out of the equation and instead discuss what is political differences as racial differences. So there's something very interesting going on here sociologically yeah. and 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 maybe that's the distinction here maybe that's the way to think about what you were saying angel that that there's the, the way people people really are and then there's what appears to be happening in terms of race maybe those are just yeah it's really just two different phenomena that it, that one has really nothing to do with the race that's the flattening again right because you're talking about all right let's say latinos right that encompasses so many different cultures and so many different perspectives so many different people they're all lumped together and we're just trying to get the Latino vote. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I think you mean the Latino vote. 
Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. No, I just cringed. I got douche chills. I, I just think that when the New York <laughs> Times has to contort itself into a pretzel just to have to run the headline to explain the phenomenon you just described, Sarah, as right. multiracial whiteness or multi-ethnic whiteness, I, I think that's right. when we we really lost the plot, right, as a society. Yeah, it's totally jumping the shark and it's totally missing out on something really important. Like the reason you're losing people is because they're clearly not relating to the narrative that you're pushing. They're going, that's not my reality at all. That's not what I think at all. That's not what I care about at all. Well, I'm not going to hang out with you now. I'm going to go hang out with them, which is, you know, that's also kind of a, a false sort of binary thing of like, well, I don't like you. So I'm just going to go hang out with, you know, your enemy. That's yeah. because those are my only choices. That's well, also kind of silly, but I mean, but there's also uh, it's also a side effect of of true you know racial harmony and diversity that you know I mean I experience this as a minority. I don't mm. like hearing white people denigrated all the time. I you know I have a lot of close people in my life who are white. You know I mean right. we're talking about interracial marriage. There are people who are marrying white people and and thinking this person's not the devil. And this is my spouse. <laughs> this is somebody I love. And, you know, and maybe my children, you know, look yeah. white or they're white adjacent or whatever it is. Right. But it, it, you start to, as you start to truly, you know, become one, you know, it's it, truly to see each other as, as human, it becomes more and more difficult to accept this narrative where one person is, uh, or, you know, one, one race is, is the, you know, the devil that we all have to face yeah. together. I think our mutual friend, Faisal, he's, you know, one of my favorite tweets of all time is he's like, look, I'm not racist, but I don't hate white people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I I forget, I forget which is, I'm pretty sure it was a jazz musician. I can't remember who said it now, but it was something to the effect of, you know, they keep wanting me to hate white people, but I keep meeting them and it completely makes it impossible. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the reality on the ground is so different than the rhetoric. And I feel like so much of that is why we're having such trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I really want to talk to you about, uh, you wrote about Joe Rogan, you wrote about censorship in your Substack, And I think that you, I think Melissa, Melissa agrees, you kind of, you just struck the perfect chord with respect to what the problem is, acknowledging what the problems are but also looking at the proposed solutions of shutting it down and, you know, shouting it down and all that sort of stuff. And the, the, the backfire effect that you anticipate, which I think is totally true. Um, but why don't you, yeah, why don't you um, talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I, um, maybe a surprise to some, but I, you know, I like Joe Rogan, <laughs> I mean, not a surprise to you guys, but it's, um, it, it, you know, there's part of it is, was, is just a general discussion that we've been having about finding villains in the narrative and pinning on them, um, a lot of other, uh, aspects of, of, of the, the, the discourse that is troubling to us. Um, so there's a desire, I think, to, to pin on someone, um, vaccine hesitancy, and you know, it seems sounds like forever ago now that could, that that we even went through yeah, all right. this, right? I mean, because of right, the, yeah. the war in Ukraine and everything. But it, there was a time where this was really important, and <laughs> and I, I think there was there's a desire to find an enemy because it cannot be us, right? It cannot be we, the media elite, uh, are doing everything right, 
someone is, um, you know, uh, uh, messing with the minds of the Americans, is giving them propaganda, um, and and we need to target this person. And if it is the case that we can we can successfully take away their platform, people will now behave as we want them to behave. Um, and I think that's very. I mean, that, that in itself, it's probably a very simplistic character, maybe, of, of what they think. But I, I think there's some truth to it. Um, mm-hmm. There's some truth to to approaching Joe as um, the one in that in that case, the one enemy that if we if we are able to take down, we are we will see less misinformation. We will see uh, people behaving in the way that we want them to. But I think that the, the thing that um, I pointed out in my my piece that I thought was really missing from a lot of the here's why Joe Rogan is good, actually, articles, um, was that Joe is trusted and trusted not in the way that we would trust necessarily a, a doctor, right? There's two elements of trust. There's trust in their competency and capacity as, you know, thinkers, as experts, you know, trust in, in it that, that I might have of, of in a brilliant scientist to know what it is that he's talking about or, you know, for trust in my doctor to know what she's talking about. Um, but there's the other element of trust, of trust and intentions. Um, and I think that that is where Joe Rogan captures something that that people don't feel anymore for the rest of the the, the media. They don't feel that they can trust the CNN to have their best interests at, at heart. They don't feel like they can trust Fox News to have their best interests at, at heart. Um, they feel like they are being forced fed a narrative because they are. Um, they feel as if um, they're being commanded to behave in a certain way rather than talk to like thinking and rational individuals. And their response to that is to, to tune into this guy who is... Um, seems very empathetic. He seems curious and open-minded and um, is just wanting to understand the world a little bit more. Um, And he's open about when he doesn't understand things. He's open about when he's been wrong before. He jokingly called himself, you know, a dummy all the time. And all of that, you know, gets you to think, I think in, in the minds of a lot of people, and even in me, that this is a guy I can... I can trust his intentions, even if I don't trust that you know, the information he's giving me exa- is exactly the way it is. I can trust that he's not trying to lie to me in order to, you know, force feed me one narrative or another. And that's the element of trust that I think the media, that's where the media is losing. Um, mm-hmm. It's trust in intentions, uh, not trust in credentials you know so you can't just be like doctors say twenty thousand doctors hate joe rogan you know that's not going to change anything because it's not about they're not doubting the doctor's know-how they're doubting the doctor's intentions um and they don't they're probably doubting both they're probably doubting both. yeah sure maybe they're doubting both but i think but, you know, it does get complicated because, you know, Joe Rogan has doctors on his show and then they have right, a counter narrative right. to the narrative. And so, well, now we have competing doctors. So now it's about kind of exposing one or the other as a quack. Right. And it, it just becomes really difficult, I think. And, you know, Joe is just a guy. I mean, I don't, you know, I've been saying, I don't know how many times he has to say, I'm an idiot, don't listen to me, before people recognize, you know, maybe they shouldn't listen to him. And there's also a thing of, the, you know, people who who criticize the fact that he's having a conversation with somebody who is spewing misinformation, which 100% has happened, yeah. right? Um, 
but they can they can watch the show and they can watch the episode in order to criticize it and pull quotes and talk about how terrible it was. They can watch it and listen to it without being swayed by this, you know, venom of of misinformation to mix metaphors. But but the yeah. fear is no, 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 but they can't they don't have this capacity. Mm-hmm. Other people don't have this capacity to mm-hmm. just watch that show and decide for themselves what they think. You mm-hmm. know, the minute they put on Joe Rogan, they're just brainwashed. And that yeah. seems to be the implication when, when, you know, nobody ever quite gets there. Yeah. But my definitely, question, I mean, of, I mean, there's a, know? there's a, you're dumb and you need, you need to have us explain to you how to think about right. things, which is the opposite approach right. than the one Joe takes. And the one Joe takes is obviously very appealing to people um, mm. in a fundamental sense. And it makes, makes sense why it is. Um, right. And you know, I think that this trust in media problem that's been getting pretty bad is just going to get worse because I don't see uh, a lot of them. At, yep. There was a brief period, if you remember, after the election mm. of Donald Trump, where for like two weeks there was introspection. There was like, how did this happen? Like two, uh, this, this tiny yeah. sliver like of time. I remember New York Times being <laughs> like, wait, wait a minute. How did this happen? Um, and, and that was it. And then it, yeah. and then it just disappeared. They're like, um, yeah. and, and, and then there was this fever of, of, you know, that, that took over a lot of people, um, right. during the Trump, um, Trump era. Oh, no, I think, I think, you know, obviously the, that there, there's a very obvious double standard here, right? Because Joe is, is, is constantly accused of, uh, putting out disinformation or, or misinformation on, on his podcast just by interviewing the wrong person or, or just, you know, getting, um, or, or just like saying something about say the, the vaccines, um, that, that may not, you know, be completely aligned with what the CDC is saying. And, and, but, on the other hand, that happens a lot in the news media and they get caught out a lot, but mm-hmm. there's never any mea culpa, um, even with fact-checking sites. But but it's so rare to to see cable news or or you know, one of the big legacy media institutions just put out something and say, mm-hmm. you know what, we got this story wrong. I mean, recently, yes, I, I did see the the New York Times come out and actually say, uh, you know, we actually did verify the contents yeah. of Hunter Biden's laptop. Yeah. You know, sorry, yeah. <laughs> without saying sorry, but, but but that kind of thing needs to happen more and more often because because unless they acknowledge, because you know that's the thing, Joe Joe does that. Like he at least is 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 seen as somebody who, um, as you said, his intentions are are just getting to the truth. He's not going to say the truth all the time because none right. of us mm-hmm. know it beforehand a priori. But but at least that's his mm-hmm. yeah. directionality. And, and people just don't trust that the news media is there. And until I think there are more mea culpas and, and just straight talk yeah. whenever they get something wrong. And to be fair, Joe Joe is totally, you know, just like everybody else, he's totally biased. He's totally, sure. you know, he's going to be interested in certain things. You know, he has a tendency towards conspiracy. Mm-hmm. He loves that stuff. You know, that's mm-hmm. just kind of, um, but... But again, yeah, you know, aliens, aliens Sasquatch, yeah. et cetera. Uh, I've, I've listened to many, many hours of Joe Rogan being ridiculous. <laughs> but that's not the point. It's kind of what Sarah was saying. You know, what you were saying, Sarah, is is that he, he at least comes off to people as a genuine just dude that you can trust to at least be himself. Mm-hmm. Whether, whether that himself is, you know, super flawed and says terrible, ridiculous things that's not really as important as the fact that I, I, I feel like I know you and mm-hmm. I trust you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the, the, you know, the majority of what I've seen 
uh, in terms of media response was more of a how dare you not believe us over him. Mm-hmm. And I saw one tweet by one person. I wish I could pull it up. There was one person who said what we what we really need to think about something to the effect of this was what really we, what we really need to think about is why people are more willing to believe him over us. I think I know exactly. I remember that exact tweet. Um, yeah. It was it's like one. Yeah, it was just one. <laughs> and then the response to that, by I think there was Nicole Hannah-Jones response to it. Um, who she was, and her response was simply, um, well, we know why, you know, something about it. <laughs> <laughs> like she, she has that one hammer, right? And um, uh. I, so there's, um, I think that uh, what you said, Melissa, is, it's so important that they have been wrong. Um, there is misinformation also coming from the news media. Sometimes, I mean, it doesn't have to be deliberate, right? And it doesn't have to be, we're all doing our best. We're all trying to figure out what, you know, what's going on. And sometimes we are wrong. And that's, that, that happens. And it's, it, it may be we, that we did everything right, but we are wrong anyway, because the information given to us was flawed, that, that, that there was some other information that we didn't know, that we didn't take into account. Um, and there's nothing... Uh, I mean, I think there's a sense with the news media that if we admit to how wrong we are, how as often as we are, uh, that we will lose trust, which they interpret as merely authority, you know, trust as us as authority figures, which is the kind of trust they're willing that they're they're really nervous to lose. And because they're so nervous to lose that kind Mm -hmm. of trust, they, in fact, uh, uh, harm um, very much that that other layer of trust um, that people have over over the intention. So I think um, I, I think that was interesting. But Joe Rogan really is um, sort of an open minded guy. <laughs> open minded is an interesting way to put it. Really open minded. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of weird stuff on mm. his show. But it, it is that it is that responsibility thing that we talked about earlier about you know this is kind of what we need to do when we have, you know, everyone can have a podcast and everyone has a platform and everyone can speak. You need to kind of take it upon yourself to, you know, be an adult and go, okay, I need to discern for myself what's going on here. Yeah. But there's a lack of trust. Are normal people smart enough to, to be able to filter through? And that's what they, that's what they sincerely believe that a normal person can't parse through data and information, but we can. And that's why we, you know, put out the Vox explainers and we explain to you what you need to know about this complicated issue. But they're, and they're missing, they're missing the fact that it's not the information. It's kind of actually what you mentioned in the beginning, like, Oh, if I just explain to them what the reality is, then everything will be fine and they'll be on my side. And it's clearly more complicated than that. Yeah. You know, it brings us back to that. I think, but, you know, the important thing I think to note is that it does matter to have institutions. We need these things mm-hmm. and we need these kind of places that we can trust to be honest and forthright. Mm-hmm. And if we lose them, we're really fucked because look, I mean, look at the mayhem that we're in. Yeah. You, yeah. You're seeing that you're seeing exactly that play out right now with the Russia, Ukraine, because I'm seeing a lot of arguments like, remember that time when the news media all lied to us about WMDs mm. and going into Iraq? How can you trust when they're all unanimous now and reporting on one side, you know, and it seems... So now they're, they're using previous, previous missteps of the news media and, 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 you know, no, pretty much, I mean, where, where's the mea culpa? A lot of people just in the news media today ignore that. Um, 
and 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 using that as as a way to kind of frame the the current actions of of the, the media. And and Angel, you're right. We need these institutions because we can't make sense of the world. You know, they have resources, uh, foreign bureaus. They can send reporters on the ground in the ways that you know, frankly, Substack journalists mm-hmm. just can't because it doesn't scale that way. Um, so we do need that information, but but now we have past you know mistakes kind of coloring mm-hmm. our view of a current a current event that that's very you know that's very significant is going on now and nobody knows what to trust and i see now the new right kind of you know rising up and 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 almost parroting right what the old hippie left um is 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 saying and and it, it's a very <laughs> weird world now yeah there's definitely yeah. a horseshoe thing going on i see a lot of the far far left like total lunatics anti-nato people and the, the far right coming together in a really spectacular manner and um i I know why it's happening i and i know that it'll continue to happen um until some of the grown-ups really decide that that major changes need to take place um and i you know in in terms of if we we can just focus on one elite media institution and i don't think that some people say that you know it's wrong to just focus on the drama going on in the new york times or at harvard or 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 yale um because they don't represent anything else and i I disagree i really think elite culture permeates everything else because these are the people who end up being our leaders um and these are the people who are the most influential thinkers in in our world whether we like it or not so whatever they think uh, spills over into everything else uh, eventually, and I, I, I it, it, it's really disheartening to me to see, to see that there there just aren't enough people in these institutions that are standing up and saying that look, this doesn't make any sense, and and we need to we need to turn this train around uh, right now, or it will be too mm-hmm. late. And I wonder if it already is too late. Um, like I wonder if it is. Uh, y- I, I, I'm not a part of the New York Times, so I don't know the internal dynamics mm-hmm. that are that are taking place there. But if it's anything like the organizations that I'm familiar with in my own little tiny, um, uh, you know, speck of the universe, um, uh, there it feels as if it's too late. Um, mm. That yeah. that too many people who care have left or have been beaten down, too concerned about their own. Um, careers about their financial stability and that you have every right to be that's a very normal um, thing to be to be concerned about but together it's it's this collective cowardice um, Mm. that is going to ensure that we we just continue on this really frightening frightening little path i'm sorry i'm so depressing i i feel like i show up on on, there's that world weary activist (laughs) yeah there's that world weary activist again but actually i wonder what you think because uh in the last few days the New York Times in particular has put out some interesting stuff where a lot of people are saying maybe maybe this is turning a corner. Uh, there was an, you know, the editorial board released this piece on free speech and the free speech mm. culture, mm-hmm. which I think was pretty good. Uh, there was a couple of mm-hmm. silly missteps, but overall, I think pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, an op-ed by Emma Camp where at least, the, you know, they're talking about the mm-hmm. culture of kind of the chilling effect of mm-hmm. censoriousness. Um, And just today I read a piece about someone making the case for saying, you know, you can learn, I think it's, you can learn good things from bad people, something Mm -hmm. to that effect, you know, just like you can appreciate one particular piece of somebody's humanity, even Mm -hmm. if they turn out to be terrible about something else. 
Mm-hmm. And that's all coming from the New York Times. So do you think something's going on there? Is there is there a glimmer of hope for you? Can we put a little bit of hope and fire back into your chest? <laughs> um, you know, no. Um, <laughs> it, <it's>, really? <laughs> well, it's it's very nice to see that some people are becoming more aware of, of the problem. And there's even more space to talk about that problem. I mean, the New York Times op-ed that you're talking about with Emma Camp, it, it's it's one of those things that it's evidence of maybe the New York Times addressing this issue, but there was also a huge backlash to it. That reminds me of the Harper's yeah. letter. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's true. And it's almost it's almost proof of how bad things are, actually. Damn that it, Sarah. Very, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> that a very, um, you know, just, it, it didn't seem to me to be a piece that is, you know, throwing a lot of... Uh, Cannons left and right are throwing cannons at them, but you, you see what I mean. <laughs> um, but it, it didn't seem to me to be the kind of piece that that warranted that kind of reaction. Just like the Harper's letter was this very, very mildly yeah. worded, anodyne. Yeah, yeah, very yeah, anodyne. Super. And I remember, you know, even even as I was I was reading it and it, like the, the the draft of it, and I remember thinking, is this this is going to have no, no one's going to pay any attention to this. Like, okay, fine. I'll put my, you know, I'll put my name on and then, and then nothing will happen. I was so shocked to see yeah. that it was like an earthquake and, and everybody was behaving as if something in, there was this incredible stance that people were taking. And I, I, I was, that was also one of those moments where you stop and think, oh, things are maybe worse than, <laughs> than, than I anticipated, um, because there's no reason it should have warranted that kind of reaction. Um, and in, in, in okay. fact that it did. I, I, okay. I'll try my hand in offering you a glimmer of hope before Angel, um, asks you the, the last question. <laughs> what do you think about, you know, kind of the, the, the geopolitical trends right now, because Maybe like five years ago, um, mm-hmm. everyone thought that, or a, a lot of people thought that the um, biggest problem that was, you know, plaguing the West was Islamic radicalization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, the world was filling up with liberal democracies and, and, and you know, all of a sudden it seems today the, the rise of these, you know, authoritarian sort of all power politics has really come to play again. Meanwhile, look at the Middle East. Um, it, you know, especially post Abraham Accords, uh, they're signing deals. Ambassadors are meeting. Um, I think uh, the first Israeli uh, Jewish uh, baby was born in the UAE in, in the last few months. Um, there just things seem to be going in a very different direction than uh, what was imagined among um, kind of you know certain think tanks and and uh, political commentators just five years ago is do you see any hope of that i mean even in as how say the kingdom has uh, saudi arabia looks to be liberalizing you know mm-hmm. on that on that path even under mbs um any glimmer of hope there yeah that's, so that's i think that's an interesting um point it is nice to see western elites um forcibly say that that authoritarianism is not something that we are willing to tolerate and to recognize Russia as, as an authoritarian um, uh, uh, state, even though there were, there, there's a lot of elements that, that, you know, especially the 2020 election, the 2016 election that go into how we're casting um, uh, the, the war today. Uh, but the, I, I think there's something interesting there and I can't say I'll allow myself hope um, but <laughs> I will wait and see um, if it is the case that 
um, you know, an, an empowered, an increasingly empowered China, um, these threats from 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 Russia from various authoritarian countries, if they if they allow um, the West to have an understanding of itself, uh, to 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 to, I guess, rediscover what it is that mm. makes the West such a uniquely interesting place, um, such a, a, the place that, that birthed a lot of the civil liberties and human rights that we cherish so much today. If we can rediscover that a little bit and, um, you know, unfortunately it shouldn't take the threat of, you know, authoritarian, an authoritarian gun, and on, uh, uh, but, but if it does and, and it helps us rediscover that, then I think that that is, um, definitely that is a hopeful sign. So I'll give you that. We'll take one glimmer of hope from you. Oh, come on. To look forward to in the world. Maybe, maybe. All right. Well, Sarah, you are, you're reminding me a lot of Morgan Freeman's character in the movie Seven. Oh. <laughs> which is, you know, you're like, you're like ready to go. You're just like, oh my God, the world is awful. But, but you're still getting up and you're still doing things. And, you know, that I think the movie ends on this quote this voiceover of Morgan Freeman in his beautiful voice saying, you know, Ernest Hemingway once said that the world is good and worth saving. Mm-hmm. And, he, and then the character says, I agree with the second part. So maybe we can at least get you to agree with the second part. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm a believer in humanity uh, and I, or if, if, if maybe belief is a weird, weird word there, but, but it is something that I, I I want us to prosper. I want us to you know have a future, um, and not just like from the, the 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 personal sense that of course you know and at any time you 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 have family members in the world you you tend to care about uh, the world itself um, as sure. as your backyard. But be, beyond that, I, I I do think that there's a way out of it. I mm. wonder if we're just in um, some dark times. And it's not to say that this is where we will be forever, but it certainly feels as if um, the path towards making things better is not is not very clear. Um, And I think in the way that I think, um, I think a lot in terms of incentives um, and as much as I would love for people to just stand up and be brave and risk it all, you know, right. in reality, incentives matter a lot. And if we are um, living in a in in a society where to 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 behave in a way that 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 harms, you know, so many of these values that we care about, and 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 in the end, uh, in in a, in a way that ends up destroying the foundations of institutions that we value. If that's if the incentives are lined up in that way. That is how you know reliably many people are going to behave. So the way that what I've been thinking about now, and I don't have an answer for you um, at the moment, but the the way that I've been thinking about now is what can we do to change this this environment, change reorder these mm. incentives in a way that will uh, allow people um, the freedom that they need or the the courage that they need to start to start speaking up. Mm. Well. It's almost like you know what I'm about to ask you next. The, the, our final question that we ask every guest, maybe it'll give you a chance to kind of muse on, on exactly that. But our focus at FAIR is to provide a pro-human approach to all the issues we've been talking about, all these important things mm-hmm. that are difficult and nuanced. And so the question for, 
for you is what does pro-human mean to you? How do you conceptualize that idea? Mm-hmm. And how would you advise people on how they can be pro-human in their day-to-day lives? I wish I could give an extremely profound answer. I probably won't. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, to me, it means having a sense of, of duty towards others. Or that's how I see myself as being pro-human. That maybe this is the activist in me that I, you know, I, w- I wake up every day and I think, um, you know, what can I do to make the world a better place to make, you know, and if it was the case that I was just, you know, would wake up and think, let me just live for me, then I think I would make a lot of different choices in terms of in my occupation and in my, you know, my day-to-day, um, day-to-day, day-to-day choices. But I wish we would understand again or, or re- to, to, to acknowledge again the importance of of duty towards others. And we, I think we understood it in a military sense, you know, like a martial sense, um, that that's who we think of when we think of, you know, duty to your country, like in a patriotic way. And I think there's an element of that, but I think there's this also a, a general sense of duty towards your neighbor, um, du- duty towards your family. Um, and I think that if we start orienting ourselves a little bit more onto others, um, that 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 will that will be that's the first step towards being um pro-human you know it's not just pro me it's pro others pro you pro you know like pro my neighbor and i think that that's that's something that we are losing maybe it's because of modernity maybe it's because of the way that you know we have various factors um that that force us to to think in terms of me and be very, you know, uh, trapped in our own heads and thinking about ourselves and our choices and what we want and um, our mental states. Um, and I wish we would we would leave that space for just a little bit and and start thinking about others. I think that's beautifully profound. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Hader, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Thank you for having me. This was a lovely conversation. Great. I'm really glad to, to have been able to speak to you guys. My first time speaking to both of you. And it's just, um, it was wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.